Are you all right? You have a daughter. Yes. What is it? She's at home with the housekeeper. Yes. The housekeeper's just waxed the kitchen floor. Yes. Your daughter's running on the wet kitchen floor. And? She's leaving footprints. Yeah? The housekeeper's annoyed. She has to do that part of the floor over. Really? It's not too late. You can call her and save her. Well, um, I have some work to do, but I'll call her later, okay? <laughs> um, hey, how did you get these powers anyway? I don't know. Ed Glosser, Trivial Psychic. During a brief power outage, Ed Glosser's tanning booth experiences a slight malfunction. Forfeiting a darker base, he instead gains the mildly impressive ability to foretell insignificant events of the immediate future. This is his story. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. Today, however, we will turn our attention to the movies as we discuss David Cronenberg's 1983 Christopher Walken starring The Dead Zone. In the pantheon of Stephen King adaptations, people tend to discuss The Shining, Carrie, The Shawshank Redemption, and Stand By Me. People might mention others like Cujo, The Stand, Firestarter, Pet Cemetery, even Children of the Corn. But very few talk about The Dead Zone, a movie that caught two artists in an inspired, transformative stage in their careers, Christopher Walken, fresh from his Oscar win from The Deer Hunter, and Cronenberg, whose next movie would be 1986 classic The Fly. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, and I liked it a lot. I don't understand why no one talks about this movie in the same tones as classics like The Shining and Shawshank. All the movies that I had listed all hold between 91-93% to on Rotten Tomatoes, and The Dead Zone currently holds a 90% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and Roger Ebert had the following to say upon its release. The movie is based on a novel by Stephen King and was directed by David Cronenberg, the Canadian who started with low-budget shockers, The Brood, It Came From Within, and worked up to big budgets, Scanners. It's a happy collaboration. No other King novel has been better filmed, certainly not the recent dreadful Cujo. And Cronenberg, who knows how to handle terror, now also knows how to create three-dimensional, fascinating characters. In that, he gets a lot of help from Walken, whose performance in this movie, in a semi-reputable genre, is the equal of his work in The Deer Hunter. Walken does such a good job of portraying Johnny Smith, the man with the strange gift, that we forget this is a science fiction or fantasy or whatever, and just accept it as this guy's story. So, uh, I just want to read a little bit of, uh, about the production from Wikipedia. Lorimar Film Entertainment began developing the Dead Zone film adaptation. Producer Carol Baum gave the book to screenwriter Jeffrey Boehm and asked him to write a screenplay. I saw that it had great possibilities and agreed to do it, Boehm said. He developed a script with director Stanley Donan, who left the project before the film reached production at Lorimar. Lorimar eventually closed its film division after a series of box office failures, and soon after, producer Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights to The Dead Zone. He initially disliked Boehm's screenplay and asked King to adapt his own novel. De Laurentiis reportedly rejected King's script as involved and convoluted. However, David Cronenberg, who ultimately directed the film, said that he was the one who decided not to use the script, finding it needlessly brutal. 
De Laurentiis rejected a second script um, by, I'm just, I'm going to butcher the name, uh, eventually returning to Bowen. The film was finally on track and to be made when De Laurentiis hired producer Deborah Hill to work with Cronenberg and Boehm. Boehm abandoned King's parallel story structure for the Dead Zone screenplay, turning the plot into separate episodes. Boehm told writer Tim Lucas in 1983, King's book is longer than it needed to be. The novel sprawls and it's episodic. What I did was use that episodic quality because I saw the Dead Zone as a triptych. His script was revised and condensed four times by Cronenberg, who eliminated large portions of the novel's story, including plot points about Johnny Smith having a brain tumor. Cronenberg, Boehm, and Hill had script meetings to revise the screenplay page by page. Boehm's triptych in the screenplay surrounds three acts. The introduction of Johnny Smith before his car accident and after he awakes from a coma, a story about Smith assisting a sheriff track down the Castle Rock killer, and finally, Johnny deciding to confront the politician Stilson. Bohm said that he enjoyed writing the character development for Smith, having him struggle with the responsibility of his psychic abilities, and ultimately gave up his life for the greater good. It was this theme that made me like the book, and I particularly enjoyed discovering in it what was essentially a genre piece, a work of exploitation, he said. In Boehm's first draft of the screenplay, Johnny doesn't die at the end, but rather has a vision about the Castle Rock killer who is still alive and escaped from prison. Cronenberg insisted that this trick ending be revised. Boehm submitted the final draft of the screenplay on November 8, 1982. King is reported to have told Cronenberg that the changes the director and Boehm made to the story improved and intensified the power of the narrative. And I really wanted to include that because famously King was not a fan of the Shining adaptation. So it just it it just makes me appreciate him that he was able to uh, to watch the uh, watch the Dead Zone, enjoy the changes, and and give you know compliments to the um, to the the, the creative uh, team you know behind it. So uh, I'm gonna you know start to get into review here. So, first of all, Cronenberg populates the film with actors who can act and bring to life the emotions within the text. I mean, this film has Tom Skerritt, Martin Sheen, and Brooke Adams, and they all ground the movie in in a reality that we can buy. You know, Adams was especially important due to the complexities of the character and, and the conflict within herself when Johnny awakens. It's very palpable. Now, I mentioned Tom Skerritt. I mentioned Martin Sheen. I mentioned Brooke Adams. Uh, am I missing somebody? Oh, that's right, Christopher Walken. Look, this guy knocks it out of the ballpark in every conceivable area. Uh, he's the Job character, biblical, not Bluth, uh, and he never wallows in self-pity. He expresses frustration, but it never gets the best out of him. Uh, his perseverance is what makes it all harder to watch because it's what makes him so much likable. Um, He's dealt one misfortune after the next in every relationship he has, whether it's, you know, a, a love relationship with Sarah or, you know, a pseudo-father-son relationship with Chris is never meant to last. Um, and, and with other characters, you know, Tom Skerritt makes the most out of what he has. It's a small role, but it's enough to make me wish that we'd seen more of him because it's Tom Skerritt. And then we have the pleasure of watching Martin Sheen masterfully chew the scenery like he was auditioning for the role of the shark in Jaws. It's great. It's great. Um, so there's a, definitely a lot uh, to get into, but I, I think more than anything else, it's the performances. It's the performances that, that just really shine in this movie. And um, 
you know, I mean, they, they, they use Stephen King dialogue, but it doesn't feel stilted the way some, some film adaptations, to me, feel when they, they just lift the Stephen King dialogue off the page. Because some things I just think work better in a, in a book than in a movie. Uh, because this just feels, this, this feels like a movie. It doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel like an adaptation. It feels like its own thing, and I appreciated that. So right away, it, it doesn't start with creepy music. Again, as I've talked about in the podcasts, Stephen King has been considered a master of, uh, of horror, but it's it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's all that he can do. And then with this, it the, mu- the the music is not creepy. It's quiet. It's curious. It's a little haunting, but it's more what you expect from a drama than a horror, which is perfectly in line with the tone of the novel and the movie. So as the the music is playing, the screen fills with small town Maine right? Quintessential, picturesque America, while a title is slowly pieced together. Now, these images are necessary in reminding the viewer the stakes of Johnny's ultimate mission, which is to bring down Stilson. If he doesn't, and if Stilson takes the presidency, then the towns and country roads we are shown in the beginning will cease to exist. The America depicted so peacefully during the credits will be transformed into a blasted wasteland. So, Christopher Walken does what I had hoped another actor would have done for the character of Ben Mears in the Salem's Lot adaptation, right? So that's something that I had talked about. In the Salem's Lot movie review, I discussed the blankness of the character, and had an actor been cast with a vision, he could have filled the blanks with character traits, tics, and emotions not present in the script. So granted, Johnny Smith is a more fleshed-out character than Ben Mears, um, but he truly comes to life with Walken's performance. This is an incredible, incredible performance from an actor who was firing on all cylinders. You know, the reaction shot of Johnny in the throes of a flash locked onto the other person as if electricity surges through both of them. It's a classic image famously spoofed by Walken himself on an episode of Saturday Night Live in which he played a character by the name of Ed Glosser, Trivial Psychic. So, we first see Christopher Walken while he's reading The Raven. Um... And, and I couldn't help but think right away that much like how The Shining was Stanley Kubrick's vehicle to show the world Jack Nicholson, I can't help but think that The Dead Zone was Cronenberg's vehicle to present Walken in all of his Walken glory. Now, he isn't the full-blown Walken who will later go on to host the memorable episodes of Saturday Night Live or, or make unwatchable movies worth taking a look at by just simply having a cameo, Meet Joe Dirt, I'm looking at you. But by starting with Christopher Walken reading The Raven, it's perfect. And as a fan of Christopher Walken, who loves serious walking, funny walking, weird walking, dancing walking. I'm immediately loving the walking school teacher. And all he's done is just utter a few lines of Poe. He's gangly, he's graceful, he's funny. He has a sense of humor. He's very much like Johnny from the book, but walking totally makes him his own. Now, while on a roller coaster, Johnny is racked with a headache, foreshadowing the, the soon-to-occur tragic events. Um, and as he walks Sarah to the door, we can hear thunderstorms building up in the distance. Now, here's a change. Um, so unlike the novel, Sarah asks Johnny to come inside, and he declines. In the novel, she had grown ill while at the carnival, and, and Johnny had offered to stay with her. The fact that she said no will later haunt her, causing her guilt. What if she had said yes? Then Johnny wouldn't have ever gotten into the car accident. Now, Cronenberg flips it here, removing the refusal from Jer- Sarah and placing it on Johnny, where it manifests not as guilt, but as an itch that can never be scratched. A never-ending what-if. Uh, now, actually talking about um, 
the, um, the the carnival for a second. I I thought it was really strange that nobody else was at the carnival in the novel. King does a good job at showing how populated it is. Uh, in fact, there's actually quite a few characters that that we meet during the novel at the uh, at the roulette table, but. Um, but at the, this carnival was just strangely absent. I don't know what was going on. I don't know if they could if they couldn't hire extras. I, I I didn't know. But it was definitely it made me feel like this is a very lonely, lonely world. So then you know Johnny drives her home, and and like I said, Sarah asks Johnny to come inside. Johnny declines, and then Johnny leaves. And yikes, <laughs> yikes! Uh, the scene goes from having uh, potential to immediately devolving spectacularly into a lifetime movie. I mean, Sarah rushes out into the rain, she grabs Johnny, and she tells the audience, I'm crazy about you, to which Johnny replies, I'm going to marry you. It's a ham-fisted inclusion that wasn't needed. We're only six minutes in, and I just, I, I would have taken four more minutes of the two of them just being together, you know, at the carnival. Then the 15 seconds that are spent shoehorning in the exposition needed to make the upcoming events tragic. You know, in short, I would just have rather Gronenberg, you know, shown us and not tell us. Uh, you know, they, they kiss a final goodbye, and Sarah all but seals his fate by telling him to drive carefully. And he does, right up until he crashes into a milk truck? It's the weirdest looking thing. Uh, you know, in, in the novel, it's this violent um, crash at the hands of reckless teenagers. Here, he just, you know, the rain's coming down, and he just crashes into what looks like a, you know, a like it's trans... Basically, it's, it, it, it's exactly the, the same kind of truck that um, they, they crashed into in Terminator 2, except instead of, um, you know, the, what's it, like, dry, it's not dry ice, but just, you know, instead of the, that coming out of it, it's it's just milk. And I just wonder what was going on in Cronenberg's head, because that, to me, is so Cronenberg. I just want to know why, why he chose milk. I mean, is he saying that, you know, life is rushing out? Is, is he being bathed in life? I, I don't know. I don't get it. Maybe I'm just reading too much into it. Maybe it just looked good on screen. I, regardless, it's gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons of, of milk pouring out into the street. And then Cronenberg doesn't waste any time getting us from point A to point B. I mean, Sarah <laughs> rushes to the hospital, reminds Johnny and us, as if we forgot, that they're supposed to be married, even though we just heard this about a minute ago. And, and then Johnny wakes up. You know, with Sam Wysak uh, starting to fill him in. And it's a good scene. Johnny is, is putting the pieces together. He sees, you know, no bandages. And the way Christopher Walken plays it, it's great. He's he's curious. He's cautious. He's freaked out. But he's not freaking out. Um, it's just it, Walken is able to convey so many emotions at, at any given time. It, it's I'm just, again, I'm so glad that he was in this role. But at this point, I'm asking myself again, you know, with the, the carnival, you know, this hospital, it's like no one's in it. Where is everybody in this movie? You know, the only people at the carnival were, were Johnny, Sarah, and the carny, and the only people in this clinic are Sam, Johnny's parents, and Johnny. It just, it feels so empty, and it, it's a little off-putting to me. Regardless, soon after, Johnny learns that he's been in a coma for five years, and Walken sells it with shock, denial, and, and quiet crying. You know, Cronenberg doesn't linger and quickly cuts to the next scene where we get our first demonstration of Johnny's power when he grabs a nurse and has the first of his very iconic visions. And this is where the movie starts to come to life. Johnny's vision places him inside the burning room, and it's horrifying on multiple levels. One, the image of Johnny in the burning room seems so disturbingly dreamlike, and two, 
Walken's delivery is terrifying. If I was that nurse, I would have peed my pants. So Cronenberg is demonstrating himself to be a very economical director as he makes this movie. He doesn't waste time. You know, he moves from scene to scene at a brisk pace. With that said, you know, he does give us scenes with Johnny trying to rehabilitate himself that go a long way in selling the extent of his injuries and his positive attitude towards it. You know, there's, there's so many moments in this movie where Cronenberg makes the decision to give us a character moment. And he doesn't take a lot of time with it. He just, it's enough to show us. And it gives us so much knowledge about that character. And I'll touch on, on some of them as, as we go through this. And then um, soon after, Sarah and Johnny reunite. And it's one of these, these moments here, um, like I was just talking about. You know, we see, um, you know, Johnny trying to be brave and Sarah being honest, you know, while hiding back the guilt, you know, pushing it back until she gets into her car, you know, and she starts crying, you know, and when the two of them are first talking, Johnny's trying, you know, to crack jokes, and it's not really working, you know, she's not really laughing, it's just, because you can't, you can't really do anything in that scene, I mean, and I mean that not from a directorial standpoint or an acting standpoint, I mean, it's, there's going to be an emotion in that scene and that emotion is is loss and pity and and heartbreak and no matter how many jokes you crack it's not going to lighten the mood you can't you can't do it there's too much heaviness but i like the fact that you know johnny the character portrayed by Walken the actor is able to show how he is trying to lighten the mood you know, Johnny goes ahead with the press conference soon after. Uh, in a wise move, Cronenberg shifts the timetable around, pulling Stilson into the mix here. Um, in fact, it's an example of a major change that Cronenberg has made. Uh, and basically what I mean by pulling Stilson into the mix is uh, the reporter asks Johnny about Stilson, and Johnny doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, and so immediately it's this question, because in the novel, the novel focused on two characters' paths, Johnny and Stilson's. Um, as soon as we meet Johnny as a boy, we meet Stilson as a young man. Now, last week I interpreted it as a story of a lonely man's life, but in fact, it, it's really the story of the, of the lives of two men on a collision course. This movie, however, is more in line with what I said the book was last week, one man story. In the press conference, we get our first mention of Greg Stilson here, and it, it's Chekhov's loaded gun. By simply mentioning him, we know he'll be important, and by spending time referencing an election, the keen viewer will know that this will play a part in the narrative down the line. With the press conference, Cronenberg is able to explain Johnny's powers, explicitly stating for the audience that Johnny must touch a person in order to read their future. This scene provides a little shading to Johnny's character, who isn't intimidated by the aggressive reporter and, and actually gets a little thrill out of proving his powers. Now, you know, there's definitely cause and effect here, and, and the, the television newscast causes Johnny's mother to have a heart attack. And the scene in the hospital is, is less than a minute, I'd say, but oh my god, Walken conveys so much. He is able to do so much with so little. You know, his eyes are brimming with tears, he's choking up, but it's it's such a quiet performance. Again, I, I can't get over how good Christopher Walken is in this movie. Now, here's the deal. I mean, Christopher Walken is good in every movie. I said earlier, I like the weird Walken, I like the funny Walken, I love the dancing Walken, I love the serious Walken. Um, but I think that in, in this day and age, more people are familiar with the weird and crazy and funny Christopher Walken, and they've forgotten these types of roles. The role that he had in The Deer Hunter, which earned him the Academy Award, and, and deservedly so. That is a heart, heartbreaking movie, and it wouldn't have been so if he hadn't played 
that character, and I, I don't want to give it away because I think that a lot of people listening to this might actually not know the Deer Hunter because so much time has passed, and for whatever reason, it's it's not talked about that much. But uh, the more Christopher Walken can be in those roles, I think the better off we all are. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I do love, you know, comedic Walken because he's great. He has natural timing in the... Uh, but uh, I, I do would love I would love to see him more in the in the dramatic roles as well. But uh, you know the the like I said it the um, the newscast that he was in causes the mother to have the heart attack. Um, and then 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 we're released to the next scene, and we cut immediately to the arrival of Tom Skerritt as Sheriff Bannerman. And man, I I love this casting choice. As a picket fence fan, I felt like he's not playing Sheriff. Bannerman so much as he's playing Sheriff Jimmy Brock. Um, he's a great actor, really, for for walking. Oh, he's he's a great actor, period. But he's a great actor for for walking to play off of. I mean, in this role, and like I said, he's barely in it. But Scarrett commands a quiet dignity. You know, he has a noble everyman regality. He's stoic. He's kind, and, and juxtaposed against this, you know, Walken's natural thrum of restrained manic en- energy is is palpable. Um, I, I wish that the, the, the movie had spent, and the novel itself, had, had spent more time with these two characters playing off of each other. And, you know, I think that it was a, a really good move on the part of the, the producers of the, the Dead Zone USA TV show to have this be a central relationship in the novel where uh, Walt is not, um, you know, uh, uh, he's a lawyer in the book, right? And... Um, in the movie, Walt is, you know, one of, um, you know, he, he's supporting Greg Stilson. But in the in the te- television show, Walt is, uh, he's the sheriff. You know, he's Sheriff Walt Bannerman, um, and he's married to Sarah. Um, and then Johnny has to work with him. And it's, it, it, I think that it's, it's a good relationship. Um, and it definitely works for a television show, the, the, the cop and his psychic, you know, helper or the psychic who helps the cop. Um, and I just wish that we could have seen more with Walken and Scarrett. And I kind of wish that um, the the original uh, screenplay ending was in there, that um, Frank Dodd was still alive and he escapes. And then that way we could have a sequel to The Dead Zone and we could have Christopher Walken one more time teaming up with a, um, a larger role for, for Tom Scarrett. I just, I would have, well... You know, if if Johnny lived, actually. Um, so I'm I'm changing the ending. Johnny lives. Okay, Johnny lives. Frank Dot escapes, and Johnny has to team up again with Chris Garrett. I'm um, Tom Scarrett for a a bigger role. So Cronenberg is able to take the the major beats out of the book and condense them down to their bare essentials. You know, Johnny's mother's religious mania is downplayed, but Cronenberg still realizes that she must have some level of religion in order for Johnny to consider on some level that his powers are from God. Furthermore, rather than Bannerman calling Johnny, then having Johnny uh, later watch the television to accept Bannerman's challenge, Bannerman just comes to Johnny's house. It's, it's a good decision. You know, in the novel, time passed between the press conference and Bannerman's arrival, yet here it just seems right away. It makes the events barrel along rapidly, but not rushing through character moments such as the one where Johnny spits back Bannerman's words about what God has blessed him with. Not a religious man myself, I'm sorry to say. But I will say this. 
God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You know what God did for me? He threw an 18-wheel truck at me, bounced me into nowhere for five years. When I woke up, my, my, my girl was gone, my job was gone, my legs are just about useless. Bless me. God's been a real sport to me. Um, I, go, please go out and watch that scene. I mean, just to see the, the full effect of uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Walken's, you know, range of emotions on, on his face. Um, and one thing that I, I, I debated whether or not to, including, to include more of that scene, um, which involves a, a great uh, moment of silence between Johnny's, you know, speech here and Bannerman's very, very quiet reply. And there's this just pause in between Johnny's outburst and, and Tom Skerritt's reaction to it. And it's just, it's quiet, it's subdued. He understands what Johnny's saying, but he's resilient in his own right, you know, basically saying, you know, I'm I'm still going to ask for your help. And if, if you, you know, ever change your mind, you know where to find me. So then... Uh, David Cronenberg makes uh, another uh, deviation from the novel. So rather than inviting her over, Sarah shows up on her own to Johnny's house. And in a nice little character moment, again, going back to these little character touches that Cronenberg decides to show, we just see Johnny hang up his cane. It's a small sign of vanity, but makes him that much more relatable and human. Then Sarah, after putting Danny to bed, sorry, Danny to bed, puts the moves on Johnny and they make bookcases, which is now my favorite euphemism for having sex. This is where the economic nature of the movie fails in comparison to the book. By this point in the book, we spent enough time with Johnny and Sarah both together and apart for this moment to feel earned, and I just don't feel it in the movie. Now don't get me wrong, the actors are able to emote their feelings beautifully, especially Christopher Walken, who in a brutal scene where they say goodbye, he on the verge of tears, not wanting to, but accepting that this was a one-time thing, is an incredible demonstration in his acting ability. And then after coming inside, watching the news, Johnny lets the weight of the murders settle over him, and Christopher Walken sells the decision, quietly but forcefully stating, then repeating, I'm gonna help him. It just works so well. The scene when Johnny visits the gazebo is cinematic gold, charged with the exploding light bulbs and the gathering reporters, now, like I had said earlier, um, I had thought that the movie was strangely empty in the beginning, but to me, now, at this point in the movie, it, it's clear that Cronenberg wanted to just lay the uh, audiovisual groundwork for, for Johnny's isolation. And then when he chooses to help others, he steps into a larger world, and then one populated with those he's helping. So it makes sense for the movie to start to be filled up with characters when at first it was, it was so, um, so much just about Johnny, and so, of, of course, it, it makes sense that we don't see much else besides Johnny. And then, of course, Johnny realizes that, that Dodd is the one. Um, and I apologize for last week in, in which I refued, um, referred to uh, Dodd as Dodds. It's just my natural instinct to add that S there. Um, and then watching the movie today, I, just, I realized that um, I had screwed it all up last week, so I, I apologize, but I love the scene at the Dodd house, from Bannerman's race upstairs, 
to the horror on Johnny's face at the realization of the mother's involvement, to the ritualistic way in which Dodd prepares the scissors. And that scene is pure Cronenberg reveling in the body horror that he will soon become famous for. Although I don't understand how a pair of scissors in the mouth causes death. Uh, whatever, whatever. It's disturbing, it's memorable, it's Cronenberg. With the visit from Wysak, we, we learn the more Johnny uses his powers, the more it's going to take out of him. So here, what was hinted at in the, the novel is made explicit in the movie. Also, when Wysak approaches the house, we see a, a Stilson billboard in the distance. The legend of Stilson continues to grow without even having met Charlie Sheen yet. And soon after, Johnny begins his tutelage of Chuck, now called Chris, who has been de-aged, probably to highlight the future that Johnny has to protect from Stilson. That's my interpretation, anyway. And then, and then, when Johnny arrives to tutor Chris for the first time, here it is. We meet the smooth-talking Stilson, and my god, what an entrance. Having been a massive West Wing fan in its prime, watching Sheen perform is like watching the bizarro version of Jed Bartlett prepare to conquer the world. He's fast-talking as if his brain is on fire, but unlike Bartlett, his thoughts are not designed for good intent. Cronenberg teases the confrontation between Stilson and Johnny through an almost touch that has bufferted with a vote for Stilson button. No contact, no vision. The tension now increases. We've heard the name, we've seen the billboard sign tease in the background, and now we finally meet the character, <clears throat> but we can't see the future. What's going to happen? Why is this character so important? Why do we want to know what Johnny will see so badly? It's a smart choice to have kept Stilson from the narrative until this point. Unlike the novel counterpart, this character is a mystery. Our not knowingness draws us in further. You see, by this point in the novel, we knew he was a bona fide dangerous lunatic. Here, we might get the sense that he's pompous, and maybe a little sleazy, but he's undeniably charismatic. His fast-talking alpha male posturing is a great counterpart to Walken's quiet magnetism. In fact, speaking of bizarro counterparts, in a bizarro alternate universe, Martin Sheen could have played a very memorable Randall Flagg. We watch him on television roping in the public while Roger explains the danger of voting for a man like that. It's an important scene to play up the threat of Stilson, which is then cemented with the scene in which Stilson threatens the newspaper editor. We realize that he isn't just charismatic, and Roger is very correct in his assessment of Stilson. He's dangerous. Very dangerous, in fact. He's not just power-hungry. He's insane! Speaking of having visions of being president, we later see in Johnny's vision the extent of his madness, willing to subject the world to a nuclear war just so he can fulfill what he believes is his destiny. And then Cronenberg greatly deviates from the source material here by dovetailing Sarah's storyline into the Silson storyline, and I think it's a wise decision for the movie. It might be a little too convenient, but it adds an emotional conflict to our main character, and Johnny's breakdown after seeing Sarah hugging Chris is truly touching. The contact provides one of the most memorable uh, of, the, of the movie's visions, and rather than a massive fire that uh, Johnny sees in, in this character's future in the book, he was called Chuck um, in, the, in the movie, he's called Chris, um, so rather than that massive fire, it's a small-scale drowning accident. Now, I, for one, think it's a good decision, and the scene itself provides one of Christopher Walken's best moments in the movie. From the moment he steps out of the car, he's a man possessed. For a character who walks with a cane, Walken's dancing background can't resist from making him limp gracefully. He doesn't limp heavily, you know, he doesn't trudge. The dude just swings off of his cane. It's an incredible effect. He charges up, 
forcing Roger to acknowledge his abilities, and after Roger ignores his pleas, he smashes a vase again with a measure of grace that makes Walken stand out from other actors, and then he says, oh, I, I, I can't do it justice. I'm just going to play the scene. Oh my god, and that is why Christopher Walken rules. I'm just going to play that last part one more time. I'm sorry, I can't help myself. The ice is going to break! Often imitated, never duplicated. Just thank you, Christopher Walken, for just being Christopher Walken. Anyway, after Johnny receives the vision about the future, the end comes super quickly. He has a quick conversation with Sam about killing Hitler, and with a voiceover by Walken in which he reads a letter to Sarah, he tells her and us that his power is a gift, and he has to do what he has to do for the good of the world. It's a goodbye letter, and the way in which his voice breaks when he says it just wasn't in the cards for us, it's devastating. Again, I'm sorry, I just, this, this, you know, this is a love letter, you know, that I'm talking about to Sarah, but this entire podcast, I feel, is just a love letter to, to Christopher Walken. Uh, he's just, he's out of control in all the right ways in this, in this movie. So Johnny loads the rifle, and Cronenberg decides it's not enough. He cranks up the tension um, by letting a bullet fall into the crowd. Our hearts lurch. Will it alert people to his presence? No. Okay, we can breathe. Johnny tries loading. The gun is jammed. Our hearts lurch again. Will Johnny even be able to go through with this? The rifle loads. Whew. We take a breath and wait for Johnny to, to get his opportunity. So what's included in this movie here that's not in the novel, again, like I said, is Sarah, who sees him and calls his name. So again, if you want to make the argument that this is too convenient, I'm not going to stop you, but it's a choice that I think works for the movie. When Stilson holds up the baby, it's a baby we know, Denny, and it personalizes the horror of his actions that much more. And then when he's shot, um, you know, the ending here, it gives Johnny at least one relief, that he doesn't die alone, and he's able to say goodbye to the one he loves, and he's able to hear, I love you back. So having her in this movie provides just a little bit of comfort, just a little bit of relief that he missed the entire movie. So I, 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 can, take, I can take comfort in that. Then the final confrontation between a dying Johnny and an enraged Stilson is haunting. You know, it, it reveals a broken Stilson on the edge of a bed set against an abyssal backdrop. There's nothing, only blackness. Death encircles him. Death comes for Stilson in the future, and then for Johnny in the present. And then just like that, the movie's over. So, some final thoughts. Uh, first, um, the Cleveland show is just always on my television whenever I turn it on. Um, why is that? Sorry, I, uh, I know it's about the, the dead zone, but it's just it's something that's been bothering me lately. And uh, if anyone has the answer, please let me know. Anyway, uh, final thoughts. It's a very faithful adaptation of the novel. It's very quiet so I can see why it's not talked about more often. I think it wouldn't be talked about at all if it wasn't for Christopher Walken to center the movie. 
the role of Johnny been cast by any other actor, it, it could have been rather bland. But thankfully, we got a movie in which Christopher Walken was able to, to give a tour of a range of, of many, many emotions. And I'm very, very thankful for that. Now it's come to the time where uh, we're going to discuss the book versus the movie and then break it down to see who the winner is. So we're going to start with, with Greg Stilson here. Um, now look, as much as I love Martin Sheen, and I do, um, I feel that we don't see enough of him. Um, so I'm going to go with the book on this one. Uh, the the novel is able to give us the concept of him knocking down one threat at a time, each threat believing that someone else is going to stand up to him. Now that is an important concept that's essential to the danger of Greg Stilson that was just missing from the movie. So I, I, I have to go with the book. And then Sarah. So let's see. Who's better? Is it... Uh, is it novel Sarah or is it Brooke Adams Sarah? And this one, I, I'm going with the book. I have to go with the book because I think that she's barely in the movie. And look, Brooke Adams does a, a fine job portraying her, but in the movie she seems mostly there for, um, I don't know, like a reason for Johnny to just have a tragic life. Gone are the scenes of her conflicting sides. You know, one still in love with Johnny and the other in love with Walt. Gone is the scene where she finds the wedding ring and flushes it down the toilet. Now, while I like the inclusion of Sarah and her family rolled into the Stilson-Johnny conflict, I just feel like there, there just wasn't enough for her character to compare to her novel's counterpart. How about Bannerman? Uh, this is just hands down Tom Skerritt, uh, and I don't really have a reason other than, um, you know, it's, it's, this is a completely subjective um, vote on my part, and it's probably because nobody rocks a dad mustache like Tom Skerritt. Now, how about the relationship between Sarah and Johnny? And I have to go with the book on this one. You know, I, I touched upon it a little bit uh, when I discussed Sarah. But the relationship is is really filled out in a book in a way that it wasn't in the movie. Uh, in the book, you know, we get the relationship on the verge of becoming something rather than the solid relationship that it is here. And I think the novel provides a different flavor that makes it that much more tragic. Because when Johnny goes into his coma... It's not the relationship that was lost. It was all the potential that was lost. It was the what could have been that was lost. And that's a small but fundamental difference that I think tips uh, in the favor of the novel. Now, how about the visions, Johnny's visions? Um, I'm going to go with the movie on this. Uh, they're iconic. And they gave us the Ed Glosser Trivial Psychic Sketch from Saturday Night Live, which I played at the, the top of the podcast, and I'll never get enough of that. And that leaves uh, just one person, and that's Johnny. So who is it? Is it Johnny from the book, or is it Christopher Walken Johnny? And I think that um, if you've listened this far in this podcast, I think that you know the answer, and I'm going to go Christopher Walken all the way. I just think that he makes this character shine. And and nothing against the Johnny from the book. At, you know, in, in last week's review, I was very complimentary of the character. I think he's a really strong character. I think he's funny. I think that he's, you know, he, he's heroic. He's brave. You know, he's, he's introverted. Um, he's haunted, but he, he's never sullen. I think that he's a really strong character. And I think that Christopher Walken is all of those things as well. But Christopher Walken is able to, to add a, uh, an X factor that uh, the novel didn't have, and he just makes them uh, that much more memorable. And just like like I said, from from little little touches of you know him you know uh, hanging up his cane you know for a moment of vanity, or, or the simple way that that you know when he walked and he you know um, got some momentum, the way that his body would just swing 
to of course his like I said his often imitated uh, you know accent you know Christopher Walken is just he's an amazing um, on-screen presence to watch and listen to and he he was able to bring so much out of this character that I think he just elevated the the, the, the movie itself so I'm going with was Christopher Walken which leaves the, the big question here what is it what's better is the book better? Is the movie better? And I'm going to say that the book is better. Now, while I admire that the creative team streamlined the movie, I still feel that uh, the parts are that are fleshed out in the novel expand on important themes and allow us to explore the characters more intimately than in the novel. So there you have it. That's, that's my belief, uh, that the, the, the novel in this case wins out. So I hope that you enjoyed our review, um, and make sure you stick around uh, for next week, in which I will review um, the classic novel Firestarter, and then after that, of course, we will review the the movie. Um, so everybody, you know, just make sure uh, that you stick around. Thank you for coming, and uh, please keep the uh, the emails coming my way. You can you can write to me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Like I've like I keep saying, I, I don't want to do this alone. I really want to be able to share your thoughts. So please, you can you can talk about the the following subjects here. You know what Stephen King means to you, and of course that can encompass so many things. Um, you know any uh, you know agreements or disagreements. This is very important. You know I I need you to challenge me on some of my. Um, uh, you know thoughts here so on any of the reviews that that I've done so far so that that includes Carrie Carrie the the review of, of both movies Salem's Lot the Salem's Lot movie and with the Salem's Lot movie I was not I was not uh, you know very supportive of it and I know there's a lot of people out there that love that movie so if you feel I'm wrong in any way and you want to poke holes in any arguments that I make please please feel free the Shining the book, The Shining the movie, and again, a lot of people out there, you know, feel as though the book is better than the movie. So if you if you disagree with that, you know, let me know. Anything in uh, the the night shift that I didn't cover that you want to talk about, please, you know, let me know. And of course, Children of the Corn. So there's so much out there for us to talk about and anything that you want me to talk about or if there's anything that you want me to do differently on the podcast i can't promise that i will but any ideas that you come you know, that come my way can only help me as a podcaster and can only help you um with the listening experience so stephen kingcast at yahoo.com please feel free to to reach out um, like me on iTunes because I feel the, the more likes that I get, uh, the more we're going to be able to expand our conversation here. Um, the, the Instagram community has been a very active community with Stephen Kingcast, and I, I really appreciate that. So, you know, you can follow me on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Stephen Kingcast. Um, and the Facebook page is right now, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the town in Children of the Corn. There, there's not much going on because it doesn't have that many likes. So um, please feel free to, to head on over to uh, Facebook and find Stephen Kingcast. Um, and like it because I want to start using the, the, the Facebook page more than I am right now. So there's so many ways for us to engage in, in dialogue out there on social media and, and using the Internet at our disposal. So please, all of the, the, the ways that I've mentioned are valid ones. Uh, I would love to you know, engage in conversations with as many of you as possible in many, many different ways. So please feel free to reach out 
um, so we can start those conversations. So everyone, thank you for listening. Have a fantastic week. I'll see you here again next week. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.